Well, that was wonderful, and I really, really love to see the Word of God being taken to heart and to, to be stated with uh, such emphasis as well. So praise the Lord for that, and we do hope that uh, they'll give us more like that. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 8. A couple of weeks ago, um, I took Krista away for a couple of days, and uh, we decided that as part of what we would do while we were away is we would memorize Psalm 34. And so uh, we went about doing that. In the psalm, David speaks a lot about troubles. And in it he says, This poor man cried out, and the Lord delivered him or saved him out of all his troubles. Again, he says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And again, he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of all his troubles. The Lord is in the business of delivering people out of trouble, and we need it. We talk about the Lord saving us, and we need to be saved because of our sin, saved from hell, saved from the lake of fire. Tom talked about that last week. Sometimes, however, Christians act as if or talk as if they don't have a trouble in all the world, never seen any trouble. If that's your Christian life, <laughs> I don't know it. I've seen nothing but trouble and uh, all kinds of trouble in life. They think that if they face trouble, others think that if they face trouble, well, somehow they must be out of the will of God. Sometimes that's true. But I would say most of the time it's not as a believer. I can guarantee you this thing if you are a Christian this morning. You will face trouble. You will. Um, And if you have troubles in your life, it's not necessarily because you're out of the will of God. Certainly, it's good for us to take account, to, to think back in our life and say, you know what, have I messed up? Have I sinned? Have I done something against the Lord? And certainly, confession and forsaking of sin is proper and right. But if all that is said and done and you're still in trouble... Don't necessarily think that you're out of the will of God. And we're going to see that this morning. The Apostle James says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you face various trials. In other words, he, it's, the assumption is there that you're going to have troubles. And when you do, count it all joy. Now that takes a change in our character. It really does. Because our tendency, my tendency, I won't speak for you, my tendency is that when I'm in trouble is to grumble and complain and just like the children of Israel did. Get on the other side of the Red Sea. Well, what have you done for me lately, Lord? You know? And that's, our, that's my tendency. But, but James says, no, count it all joy. The Lord is at work in your life. And one of the things that he is doing is he is changing your character. Not only is God in the business of saving souls, but he's in the business of changing character changing my character so that I might be more like his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, oftentimes, um, he wants to produce patience in our life. In fact, James says that. And so how does he do that? Well, he brings a trial. Because as we suffer in the trial, something happens to us. 
We develop patience. We learn patience. God wants to produce faith in you. And so how does he do that? Well, he allows yet another kind of trial. The kind of trial that causes you to be cast on the Lord and dependent on him in such a way that you have to believe in him and believe that he will provide and deliver you out of all your troubles. Trials also demonstrate who God is and how much he can be trusted. A verse in one of our hymns says this, When trouble like a gloomy cloud has gathered thick and thundered loud, he near my soul has always stood, his loving kindness. Oh, how good. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 8 this morning, verse 22. It's a trial to test the faith of Jesus' disciples. Let's see how they do. Luke 8, 22. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And I'm sure they said it louder than even that, but I didn't want to send you out to the streets. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased, and there was calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Who can this be? Well, the first thing we see in verse 22 is that he, Jesus, got into the boat with his disciples. He told them that the purpose for getting into the boat was so that they might go from Galilee over to the other side of the lake. So that was his will. You want to know what God's will was at this moment? This is it. We are going to the other side. He said that. And Jesus was in the boat with them. So they were in the center of God's will. No question about it. And in the center of God's will, they faced trouble. And plenty of it. The disciples didn't know this, but Jesus was on a mission. Jesus had worked all day long, had ministered to people, had healed sick people, had dealt with crowds of people. It was now evening time. And as the evening time came, they got into the boat because he had a mission. He wanted to accomplish something. There was one, actually there were two people. There were two people that he wanted to see. Two people who had a storm, not in the sea, but a storm in their life. And we're going to talk about that in a minute too. And he wanted to see them and he wanted to deliver them from all their troubles. That was his mission. And he was going to accomplish that mission. And no storm in the sea was going to stop him from it. Desperate soul in need of salvation. And he was going to make the trip that night. So he got into the boat. And it's in the evening. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on the ocean or been on the sea before. But at night, colors disappear. Everything is black. And if you're out on the water and there are no electric lights around this whole lake, it's dark. And if you're in the darkness and you're moving around, how many of you have been in an earthquake in the dark? Okay. Yeah. 
It's, it's a scary thing. But now, this is much worse than an earthquake. You're in a ship that is being tossed to and fro by the wind and up and down in the waves, and you don't know what's going to hit you next. And the boat is beginning to fill with water. But Jesus is going to the other side of the lake. Sea of Galilee is actually known for its sudden storm. The, it's surrounded by hills, and the wind whips down the hill at certain times, and it begins to churn the sea up into a froth. And uh, it's very dangerous for small craft to be on the water. Jesus got on the boat. He was exhausted from a day of ministering, and he went to the stern. How many boatmen do we have here? Stern, Matt. That's the back, yeah. That's funny. I was reading a couple of illustrations about this this week, and he goes, and Jesus went to sleep in the front of the ship. I said, no, it was the back. Stern, it says. Yeah. He found a pillow. He lay down, and he fell fast asleep. The disciples pushed on, and suddenly they were in this tempest of whipping wind, and uh, the waves were coming over the bow of the ship and into the hull. It was so severe that these seasoned fishermen among them were afraid that this would be their last day on earth. That's what they felt. They had been on this sea. They had fished this sea. They knew this sea. By the way, this sea, it sounds like it's a huge, you know, like the Pacific Ocean. The Sea of Galilee would actually fit inside of the San Francisco Bay. Okay, It's smaller than the San Francisco Bay is, but it's much deeper. It's 150 feet at its deepest point. But size-wise, it's about as wide as the widest part of the bay and would go from about, let's say, the, the Oakland Airport down to the Dumbarton Bridge. That's how big the, the, the sea is. It doesn't matter. It's water deeper than they are, and it's churning like nothing else. I don't care how small it is. It's going to kill you. That's what they thought. The trial was real, and it was serious. Wave after wave came across the bow, came into the hull, began to fill the boat, so much so that it says they were in jeopardy. They thought the boat was going to sink and that they would then be floating in this tempest. These were their final moments. These were their final breaths. And soon they would find themselves at night in a watery grave. That's how bad it was in their thinking. I grew up around water. My dad had a boat. We like to call it a ship. (laughs) It was pretty big. And um, I've been out on the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, in storms, and it's not fun. I've been in a small craft vessel that was being tossed by the wind and the sea. And I'm telling you, it's scary. It's frightening to be in a ship, in a boat, that you think is going to break apart and as the waves lift you up and then suddenly there's nothing there and the ship or the boat comes crashing down and you feel the thud as it hits the water again and you go back up and it keeps going like that and you're supposed to be going in a straight line but the ship is going back and forth like this. It's, it's incredibly uh, frightening, especially if you're in charge of it all. I've been in large ferries. There's a ferry system that transports people from the mainland of British Columbia over to Vancouver Island. And I've been in storms and ferries, huge, huge boats. Um, I've been in, in the, where I remember one time is my parents were sitting in decks, just like chairs, just like this, uh, um, inside the ship. And the ship was being beaten and tossed and uh, thrown around by the waves and the wind. 
And I was walking as a child like this, and my mom says, that's what it's like to be a drunk. (laughs) I never touched a drop. (laughs) I didn't want to be like that. I remember being on a ship. I've told you the story, I think, um, one night when a, a small craft ship, a boat, it was a sailing, sailing vessel that was next to the ferry, and it was in a gale force wind, and it began to sink. And it's a, it's a frightening thing as a child to, to watch as a ship goes down, and it sunk. Um, and the three passengers on board, two of them died at sea. One was rescued and later died of... Um, essentially uh, from having inhaled so much water. They uh, drowned, but later. There's only one place you want to be at times like this, and that's on dry ground. Dry ground. But I want to propose something to you, that the disciples were safer in this ship with Jesus than they would have been on dry ground. If you're in the midst, if you're in the center of God's will, which they were, and Jesus is there in your midst, you're on very safe, a very safe location, very safe place. Well, they thought they were going to drown. They went to the stern and they woke Jesus up and said, Master, Master, we are perishing. In another uh, chapter, in another uh, gospel, it says, Master, do you not care that we perish? Do you not care? Whoa. Jesus had said to them, let's cross the lake to the other side. And he was going to be there. He was going to get there. They were in the center of God's will. I want to just say to you this morning, if you're going through a trial today, don't be anxious. The Lord knows. He knows you're there. He knows what's going on in your life. He hasn't forgotten you. And if you are in the center of God's will, it doesn't matter what trial you face. He is there. He will see you through. He will. It says this in the scripture. He will deliver you out of all your troubles. Okay? Three times in that psalm it says that. You want three witnesses? There they are. All our troubles. Mark's account, he says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Oh, the, really the desperation they must have felt to believe that they would be swallowed up in the storm. And the unbelief they demonstrated really by rebuking the Lord. Lord, don't you care? You ever been in their shoes? Maybe not on a boat. But you face circumstances in your life where you begin to wonder if the Lord even cares. Is the Lord even paying attention? Perhaps you suffer from an illness or physical impairment, and you may not verbalize it, but in your heart, in the way, your attitude, are you saying, Lord, do you care? Yes, he cares. A tragedy strikes close to home, and you wonder in your heart, Lord, do you care? Trials seem to pile up and, and overwhelm you, and, and you don't sense that it's a sin in your life, but life itself is about to drown you, and you cry out, Lord, do you not care that I am perishing? Does he care? Well, he certainly cared here. It says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And then he turned to them, and he says, Where is your faith? 
<laughs> it's a great question. It's a great question. Where is your faith? Four words. And they were afraid and they marveled and said to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water and they obey him. In a trial, there are only two questions to answer. Where is your faith? And who can this be? Jesus asked the first question. Where is your faith? And his question suggests that there is no need for fear in a trial. They were in the will of God. They were doing what he told them to do. And he was with them. And he is the God of all creation. And he has power over nature itself. Where is your faith? Think about who he is. And that was the question they asked. Who is this? Why did he rebuke them for having no faith? When we let fear control our lives, we are really saying, Lord, I don't trust you. And God wants us in a position in our life where we trust him for everything. He is worthy of our faith, of our trust in him, whether it's for salvation or whether it's deliverance from any problem that we suffer. He is worthy of our trust. When we let fear control our lives, we are not trusting God. And really, we've got to go back to some very simple basics. Do not forget God's power. Do not forget God's love. And do not forget God's promises. He will not leave you or forsake you. He promised that. Well, the disciples asked a good question, too. Who can this be? (laughs) Who is Jesus Christ? This is really one of those great portions of Scripture. There are several like this uh, in the Bible where um, you clearly see the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his full deity. It's very clear here. First of all, he is a man. One of the things that shows me that he is a man is that he was exhausted and he was asleep and he was tired and he slept in the raging storm. That's how exhausted he was, fully human. But when they awakened him and he looked around at his creation that was in a storm and the winds and the waves were tempestuous, he simply turned to the waves and the wind and he said, peace, be still. And they obeyed his voice. Who but God could do that? I could get out any, in, a, in a ship like that and say to the wind's wave, peace, be still. Whew! You know, <laughs> get knocked over by the next wave. He is God and the winds and the waves obey him. He is the creator of all of these things. There are a couple other scriptures I mentioned that show his full humanity, his full deity. I think of the passage where he was at the tomb of Lazarus, and it says he wept. He wept. But then he called forth Lazarus from the grave (laughs) and gave him life. A dead man came back to life. Lazarus, come forth, he said. He thirsted at the well, but he saved her soul from hell. Fully God, fully, fully man. Did the disciples forget who he is? Do we? Yeah, we do. The disciples did the right thing, though, in crying out to the Lord, and he delivered them out of all their troubles. There's an interesting psalm. It talks about 
those who go down to the sea in ships. Psalm 107, 23 through 32 says this. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that, the, so that its waves are still. Then they are glad. <laughs> That's an understatement. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. I'm telling you, if you've gone through a trial in your life and you've come to the other side and you're in a safe haven, it's a time to get up and to praise the Lord for what he has done for you. I know that every one of you has been through some trial, some difficulty, some test in your life as a believer. And you can testify to the saints. You can testify to others about the faithfulness of our God. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. But now there's a man from the Gadarenes who was in serious trouble. This is really the reason Jesus wanted to get across the lake. And Jesus was on a rescue mission. He told the disciples to um, cross over to the other side. And as I said, there's no storm that would get in the way of Jesus accomplishing his purposes. So let's take a look at uh, Luke 8, 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of swine, of many swine, was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed (laughs) and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. 
Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed through the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Did you notice that, by the way? Just this is kind of an aside. But look at that last verse. It says, And tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Okay? There's no question. One of the very clear uh, statement there. This is really the most striking account of demon possession in all of the Bible. Uh, it, it is both frightening and a very moving story. It's frightening to, to learn that a man can be possessed by a legion of demons. That is incredibly frightening to think about that. It is moving to read of the compassion that Jesus had on this man. It also demonstrates his power over demons. He is God. Demons are creation, part of his creation. They are created beings, and he has power over the demon world. Now, this is not the first account of Jesus healing um, a demon-possessed man, nor will it be the last. But the, the tragedy is that there are any accounts of demon possession at all. It, it's very, very sad to see. Demon possession, I, I just want to say this, is separate and distinct from mental illness. It's a very different uh, issue here. And uh, although there are some similarities in peculiar behavior, but I just want to make that uh, that statement. Now, it's um, the man from Gadarenes was demon-possessed. It was not a case of mental illness where he could be given medicine and be cured. They tried everything they knew how to keep him caged in, and they were totally and completely unsuccessful. Tom, I can imagine you going out and uh, seeing someone like this on the street and putting handcuffs on this man, if you could even get that close to him, and him just simply snapping the handcuffs off as if they were spaghetti. You know, It's a very frightening thing. They had chains on this man. They had him caged in, and he broke out of all of that. Superhuman strength, there's no question about it. Um, he was demon-possessed. And the only thing, the only way he could be cured from this would be to have the demons removed from him. And no human being could do that. The Bible speaks of demons and demon possessions. But who are they? What are demons? Who are they? Well, let's go back in history. Before God created the heavens and the earth, God created an order of beings called spirits. We call them angels. And he created myriads, thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000 angels. I don't know how much that really is, but it's a lot. It's a lot. And he created them. And anything that God creates, he creates good. We see that from the scripture. When he created the heavens and the earth, after every day of creation, God said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Every time. So I'm sure the same is true when he created the angels. He created them all good. But God didn't create robots. 
The same thing is true of us. When God created human beings, he didn't create robots. He created us with a free will so that we would have a choice to trust him or not to trust him, to believe in him or not to believe in him, to worship him or not worship him. We have that choice. That's our freedom that he has given to us. And he did the same with the angels. He gave them a free will, a free choice. The angels worshiped God, and the angels did God's bidding. I don't know how long they existed. I know they are created beings and that they had a beginning, but I don't know how long they were before the creation of the heavens and the earth. The Bible tells us that angels are a higher created order than human beings. It says that in Psalm 8. It says that uh, we were made a little lower than the angels. So there's a ranking, if you will, in God's creation. And angels are above us. They are greater than us. They are more powerful than us. They are probably, I have no doubt about it, they're far more intelligent than we are. They can do things that we can't do. Uh, They can travel faster than we can travel. They can be places and do things that, that are incredible. Um, we just, we, in the scripture, it's like the curtain is pulled back just a little for us to glimpse into this realm, but we can't see it. Okay? God hasn't given us eyes to see it, but it's real. It's just as real as this pulpit is. Occasionally in scripture, angels appear to human beings. And every time that I can think of, I may be wrong, but every time I, I think, I can think of, when men see an angel, they are scared to death. <laughs> it is a frightening and awesome scene because they are so much greater and so much more powerful and so much more glorious than we are. Spirit beings, great in power. In Hebrews, we read that God makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. In the same chapter, he calls them ministering spirits who, uh, who minister for those who will inherit salvation. And this is an interesting thing, that God did not choose to save angels. That's remarkable, because they're greater than we are. And yet he chose not to save them. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But he chose to save a lower creation, that's us, humans. When we sin, God set into motion, he set into motion before we sin, the plan of salvation, the salvation of our souls, if we would believe him. And God has created the angels to operate as ministering spirits for us. That's incredible to me, that God allows them to minister or to serve those he saves. That's incredible. That's what it means uh, about um, ministering to those who inherit salvation. Most of the time in the scripture, when you read about angels, you're reading about unfallen angels, angels who did not sin. And um, they're called holy angels or elect angels. But that's not the kind of angels we're talking about in this passage here. So there's only one other group of angels that I know of and that is what we call demons. One of the most beautiful angels that ever existed, perhaps the most beautiful angel that ever existed, was an angel called Lucifer. And he was in the very presence of God. 
And God gave him a very special place of, of worship and honor, really. I mean, he wasn't worshipped. He worshipped God. But of honor where he would be able to worship God. And it went to his head. And he became proud and puffed up. And he began to think about how beautiful he was and how great he was and what an exalted position he had. And you know what? I should be God, he said. I should be like the Most High. I should sit on his throne. That was the, what we call the devil today. Lucifer is his name, the devil or Satan. And not only did he exalt himself and, and uh, uh, present himself in all of his pride. But he actually influenced one-third of the angels to follow him. And so we call that grouping of angels demons. And uh, you have Satan and all of the angels who sinned with him, God cast out of heaven. And a third of the angels, the tens of thousands upon thousands, I don't know how many demons there are, but there's a lot. And they were cast, uh, cast out of heaven and, um, because they rebelled against God's authority and they rebelled against God himself. In the Bible, the New Testament speaks of these spirits as evil spirits, unclean spirits, spirits of devils, foul spirits, and demons. And it is these demons that we are talking about who filled this man. A legion of them. I don't know how many a legion is. Some suppose that it was 2,000 because there were 2,000 pigs who were killed that day. But a legion could be anywhere from three to 6,000 men. And the, the term legion was used of a group of military men between three and 6,000 men. So whether, let's take the minimum of only 2,000, but can you imagine these glorious, powerful uh, creatures indwelling a single human being? Thousands of them. And imagine the strength of just one of those angels. Um, it's absolutely frightening. There are things that we know about these spirits from other parts of the Bible and also from this section. An unclean spirit obviously can indwell a human being or possess a human being or an animal in this case too. In fact, it is clear from this section that many unclean spirits, many demons can enter into a person. Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. Uh, a man in the synagogue had at least two because the demons cried out, let us alone. And this man, as I said, had perhaps as many as 2,000 or more. It seems that demons prefer death, not death themselves, but prefer to dwell among dead or, the, or, or uh, near places of death. An unclean spirit can give a person supernatural strength. Uh, we see that in this case here, had enormous power. We see in Mark chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, when we read about this man, it says that no one could bind him not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. So even behavioral modification was out of the question here. Demons are not subject to human behavioral modification techniques. Okay, 
Tom, do you remember telling the story years ago of a man that you had robbed a bank in the city of Hayward? And Tom was the first motorcycle uh, cop to arrive at the scene. And he was able to wrestle the man to the ground. Very, very strong man. And Tom took his club. Tell me if I'm saying this right. Took his club and he put it at his neck to subdue the man. And the man literally grabbed the billy club and pulled Tom, just did a bench press. Okay? I couldn't do that. Okay? And said in a very guttural voice, get off me. Right? Is, am I, is that a true story the way I said it? Okay. One man. I don't know if he had a demon or not. I know he was influenced by drugs, and drugs are often associated with demon possession. The word for demons, and that comes from the Greek word pharmakeia, which is where we get our word pharmacy or drugs. And there is often that influence that way, where you, a person opens themselves up to uh, demon possession. An evil spirit drives a person to distraction, and ultimately the goal of a demon is destruction. It's death. This man was uncivilized, living in the mountains and in graves. He was constantly agitated so that he could not sleep. He was emotionally a wreck. He was crying out night and day, screaming, moaning, crying. He inflicted pain on himself, as we read other uh, passages about this in the uh, New Testament. He took, uh, he took measures to cut himself and flail himself. Uh, the Bible descri- describes how demons possess people to destroy them. They can make a person deaf or mute. They can cause people to speak in loud voices, to have convulsions. They are bent on destroying people. Um, there, there's cases where they um, cause people to throw themselves down on the ground or foam at the mouth or gnash the teeth or become rigid. Uh, there, was some, there was one who uh, threw, threw a child into the fire uh, or into the water. Ultimately, Satan's goal, we know this from the scripture, is to kill and to destroy. That's it. That's what he's after. He does not love you. He has no care for you whatsoever. His greatest hatred is for God and anyone associated with God, anyone who loves God, he wants to bring down. It is said in the scripture that he is the accuser of the brethren, that he stands night and day before the presence of God. He is accusing us. You see what he did? See what she did? See what he did? and trying to bring them down. How could he be your son? Cast him out. Whatever arguments he must bring before the throne. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I don't care how powerful he is, and I don't care how powerful a third of all the demons are together. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, there is nothing that will ever pluck you and no one who will ever pluck you from his hand and no one who will ever pluck you from the Father's hand. But ultimately, Satan's goal is to kill and to destroy and the demons have similar passion. It would be terrifying to see a man like this, so possessed that he would continually inflict pain on himself and roam through the graves night and day, moaning and shrieking, In Mark chapter 5, it says when this man saw Jesus, that he ran to him and he worshipped him. You know what the Bible says? Every knee shall bow 
Every knee shall bow and shall acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I don't care how far a person has gone in sin. This is probably the most hopeless case I can think of in the Scripture of a person. If you think that, that of someone who could never be saved, this is probably the guy. Here's the, here's the poster child for someone who could never be saved. And yet, this is the one that Jesus went after and saved his soul, delivered him from all his troubles, delivered him from the demons that possessed him. I'm telling you this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a hopeless case. God can save you and deliver you from all of your sins, just like he did this man here. Seems the demon took over and feared what Jesus would do next. You see, Jesus is God, and the demon recognized who he was. And the evidence is clear that even the demons recognize he is the one true God. James tells us even the demons believe and tremble because they know what is coming. You see, I'll tell you this. The demons have been in the presence of God. They know who He is. They've seen Him. They know Him. And they know that when God speaks of judgment, that, that when He cast them out of heaven, it says in the Scripture that He prepared a place for them. And that place is the lake of fire. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. The Scripture is very plain about that. Now, Tom talked about this same place last week. And he said this is the place for all humans who don't believe, whose names are not found written in the book of life. And that's true too. That was not the place God intended for them. God has prepared a place for us too. It's called heaven. And God has prepared that place for all who believe in His Son. But He still gives you a free choice. He still gives you a will. And you have the opportunity this morning to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And that place is reserved for you in heaven. If you don't, your names are not written in the book of life. And your place is in the same place as the devil and the, and the demons. They knew. And as they're looking, they're going, wait a minute. Why are you here now? This isn't the time. We know that we're going to be sent to the abyss. We know that we're going to be sent to the lake of fire. Don't send us there. And they pled with him. They're praying. And he heard their prayer. They chose to rebel against him, and they'll suffer for it in eternity. They believe in eternal damnation because they know it's coming for them. The strange thing is that the demon begged Jesus not to torment him. Demons know that they are subject to Jesus Christ. And so they were asking permission of Jesus Christ. Don't torment us. Don't torment us. You see, God has a timetable. And now was not yet the time for him to send them to the lake of fire. Now they know it's coming. But on that basis, the demon appeals to Jesus not to torment him. And Jesus, ever true to God's time clock, grants them permission not to go. Next, we learn that Jesus has power over demons. He commanded him to come out of the man... It's a comfort to believers too. Although we have an adversary, the devil, and he is an adversary, the Bible says, and he's seeking to, kill, to, to destroy us, the Bible says this, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan is powerful, but there is no comparison between his power and God's, not at all. His power is limited, 
And God must first grant permission to Satan or to any demon to inflict any harm or any trouble in a believer's life. Do you know that? The story of Job tells us that very clearly. Satan came and had to ask permission. He says, yeah, I know, I know your servant Job and you love him and you give to him everything. That's why he loves you. That's the only reason he loves you. He wouldn't love you if you took it all away. God says, okay, I'll grant you that. Test, test him. And so Job went through a trial. And he lost everything. He was a very wealthy man. He lost everything in one day. All of his wealth, all of his crops, all of his children, all of his everything. His own wife turns to him and says, just curse God and die. Wow. That's like the final kick, you know. He says, shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Lord, may I have that attitude every time. What a, what a godly man. But the point is this. Satan had to ask permission. He couldn't just willy-nilly do this to anybody. And God says in the scripture very plainly that there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God has made it very clear that he will only allow you to be tempted, but not above what you're able. So if you're in a trouble or in a trial or in a difficulty today, God has allowed it because he knows that with his strength and his power, you are able to endure it. He knows that. He would not give you one ounce more than you are able to endure. Praise his name. Jesus had power over demons. He commands them to come out. And uh, we learned that demons have names. In this case, the name was Legion, for we are many. And as I said, it could be 2,000, 3,000, 6,000. I don't know, but a lot. It also seems that demons are territorial. The demons did not want to be sent out into the country. Um, and the Bible elsewhere speaks of a hierarchy of spiritual authorities. It's interesting that um, Jesus talks about a man who had demons and, and they were cast out and his house was swept clean. And he said that uh, the concern was that seven worse than the first would come in and uh, dwell, or more wicked than the first would come and fill the void. So there seems to be a ranking of wickedness even among uh, the demons. Anyway, the long and short of it is they were cast out. They entered into a swine that was on the hillside, and the swine immediately plunged down the hill into the water and drowned. The account of the demon-possessed man serves to illustrate one very important point this morning where this will end. There is no one so far gone that they are outside of the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, you say, well, God couldn't save me. You don't know what I've done. I don't need to know what you've done. God knows everything that you've done, and he can save your soul. And he's offering salvation to you fully and freely, without cost, without merit, based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for you. If you trust him, he's given you that free will. And I would urge you this morning, if you don't know him, trust him today. He's worthy of all of your praise and glory, all of your adoration. Wonderful, wonderful Savior. Let us pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we worship you. You've clearly shown to us this morning from the Scripture
that you are God. Anyone who can stand on a ship that is about ready to sink and speak to the creation, and the creation hears his voice and is calm. Lord, we know that you are God. When I think of this man who had legion in him, and I see him seated at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, Lord, it speaks to me of what you say in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. What a peaceful, peaceful view that is of a man who was in torment, being, being uh, uh, controlled by demons. And yet, Lord, you saved his soul and delivered him from all of his troubles. Lord, we just pray this morning that those who still don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And that, Lord, you would grant to us your peace in the midst of storms this day, your peace in the midst of trials. And, Lord, as the psalmist says, that you would deliver us out of all of our troubles. We ask in Jesus' name.